You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. At the end of the day, I would add up every transactional ticket in the firm, buys and sells. And any time that buys overwhelm sells by three to one, I would sell. I'd find something to sell the next day. Anytime sells overwhelmed buys three to one, I'd find something to buy the next day. Uh, I was in a rather unique position, I guess, because I could tabulate simply the number of tickets uh, and what was a buy and what was a sell. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm Bill Powers and sentiment for precious metals. Investors is quite low right now. And if you invest in the mining stocks like I do and Rick and Brian, then uh, we're in tax loss silly season, as some call it, as we're reaching 52 week lows in many of the companies I own in my portfolio. So here to console us and offer his wisdom is Rick Rule of Rule Investment Media, as well as my friend Brian Lenny of Junior Stock Review for another mining stock mentorship session. So Rick, thanks for coming on the show. Brian, thanks for joining me. And Rick, I'm curious to see how you would discern near-term gold bottom lows when you were a broker. Did you primarily determine that by taking all the calls and holding people's hands through times like these? It's a question that makes me laugh, Bill, um, because I have a ready answer for it. Uh, and many of your listeners are going to absolutely hate me as a consequence of my response. Uh, at the end of the day, I would add up every transactional ticket in the firm, buys and sells. And any time that buys overwhelm sells by three to one, I would sell. I'd find something to sell the next day. Anytime sells overwhelmed buys three to one, I'd find something to buy the next day. Uh, I was in a rather unique position, I guess, because I could tabulate simply the number of tickets uh, and what was a buy and what was a sell. And the tickets wouldn't determine what I bought and sold. Uh, I had a list of stocks that I was holding and nervous about. And so I would, of course, pick my sell candidates from that. And I had a list of things that I would like to own. And I would pick my buy tickets from that. But I certainly did let customer sentiment uh, determine what I did. Uh, I believe, and I've stated on your show on numerous occasions, that in cyclical businesses uh, and in volatile businesses, gold and silver certainly qualify for that, that you are a contrarian or you're going to be a victim. Those are your two choices. And it was very easy for me to tabulate uh, client sentiment, not so much based on what they said, but rather what they did. I noticed at extremes that clients were desperate to buy at the absolute top and would sell in disgust at the absolute bottoms. And uh, the consequence of having a, a large population base to choose from, probably 5,000 clients in those days, I was able to determine with really stunning specificity uh, whether people were elated, which is dangerous, or disgusted, uh, which represents almost no danger whatsoever. Hmm. So how would you talk to your clients? Rick, I've bought a few houses and I always debrief with my wife when we talk about the sales strategy of the realtor showing us the house. Sometimes they read us, then they give us, just reflect our feedback and our emotions back to us. Other times they might push or even steer us away. How would you interact with your clients during times like this? 
Well, one of the most important things that I learned as a broker is occasionally I needed to fire clients. Uh, occasionally, their paradigms were so completely uh, different than mine that I didn't feel like I could service their accounts correctly. Uh, there were clients that were smart clients and rational clients, but they thought differently. And the consequence of that is that my advice was worth nothing to them. Uh, there were other clients uh, who I didn't believe were temperamentally or financially suited to trade these stocks. Uh, and I would ask them gently to move to Schwab uh, or someplace where they could get what they paid for because they weren't utilizing my advice. Um, but then, you know, there were others who, and frankly, it was the majority, who actively did want to learn. Uh, and you could take them through what they were experiencing and explain to them that their experiences were shared by most of the population trading stocks. Uh, and the consequence of the fact that they were terrified probably meant that uh, the bulk of people buying stocks were terrified and probably meant then that they had very little competition on the buy side and should participate. Conversely, uh, like we saw in uranium three or four months ago, where people have experienced a three or 400% up move. And as a consequence of the up move, the stocks are no longer cheap. Uh, and I would have to say to those people, you know, I really like this stock at 30 cents, but at a buck 50, uh, it's precisely 20% as attractive arithmetically uh, as it had been uh, when you didn't want to buy it. Right. What questions do you have for Rick? Sure. Um, Precious metal investors, uh, those of us that are left, um, are hurting. 2021 has been a you know a terrible or a tough year. Today, given valuations of most of the gold and silver focused juniors, clearly precious metals uh, are a contrarian investment. And to me, I find this very odd given everything that's gone on over the last couple of years. In your view, what's the probability that 2022 will be a better, better market for gold than 2021 and why? I suspect the latter half of 2022 might be better. I think in the very near term that there's a, a lot of confidence in the market and there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Uh, in my experience, Brian, uh, the catalyst for a gold bull market is fear uh, around conventional savings instruments. Certainly the groundwork, the arithmetic groundwork for fear has been set. The idea that a US 10-year treasury yields you 150 basis points uh, in a currency that's declining in terms of purchasing power by 650 basis points means that those people in the public who care about arithmetic uh, are starting to be nervous. But uh, those people in the public that care about arithmetic is uh, a big sort of disqualifier. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Uh, equity indexes are still holding up reasonably well. Home sales are holding up reasonably well. Uh, employment prospects for those people who have skills who wouldn't rather simply receive checks from the government uh, is holding up fairly well. And so I don't see the kind of terror in the market that leads in the very near term to increase gold price, old gold prices. Uh, I've also found, though, that markets uh, have a habit of making a moron out of forecasters, myself included. Uh, what I've learned because I attempt to answer questions like yours uh, uh, is uh, that Warren Buffett was absolutely correct when he said forecasts tell you a lot about the forecaster, 
but not very much at all about the future. So my suspicion is that the groundwork is in place for precious metals to do well. But that's only a suspicion. Uh, I'm not an economist. I'm by nature a speculator and a lender. Uh, this I can tell you, Brian. When I look uh, at the not just the stocks above the juniors in the gold business, the miners, uh, the mid-tier miners in particular, what I see is uh, companies that are, by the metric that I use to judge them, which is the juxtaposition between net present value, net present value being the, the net present value of future cash flows from existing defined reserves and resources at current metals prices, which is to say the strip price uh, in gold as an example, the futures price in gold. Uh, these stocks by that metric, net present value versus enterprise value, are the cheapest that they've been in a 45-year career. Uh, the fact that they're cheap doesn't mean that they're going higher in any time frame that will give comfort to your readers. Um, uh, another sort of philosophical point is that, oddly, at age 68, I've become much more patient now that I have less time on Earth. Uh, it seemed when I was in my 20s that I was in a big hurry, uh, and I wanted stocks to do something for me in two or three months. And I thought that what I want mattered. Uh, in my declining years, I've learned that what I want is of no consequence to markets whatsoever. And that the timeframes, I think, in have to reflect the reality of the life that I and markets live. So when I'm making investments, I'm thinking in the four, five, or six-year time frame. Uh, when many of your younger readers uh, are thinking about stocks, they seem to have trauma holding them over a long weekend. Uh, and you know, until they learn the two lessons, which is to say the market doesn't care about their time preference and their, prime, their, their time preference precludes profit, they'll continue to do poorly in markets. Uh, sadly. I believe that precious metals prices will go higher. Uh, I'm using that proportion of my portfolio, which is uh, prudent, which is to say I'm not all in on precious metals. I'm not all in on anything. I believe precious metals prices are going higher. And I believe that uh, the better quality precious metal stocks are, uh, by the valuation metric that I use, the cheapest that they've ever been. For me personally, I hope the markets decline a little bit more. Uh, I'm in buying mode. Uh, and for me, lower prices are better than higher prices. Uh, were I in a selling mode, I would obviously feel different. I have the advantage, I guess, of the courage of my convictions, first of all, and the fact that my exposure to precious metals equities are well within my financial and psychological tolerance. Rick, you're, with Sprott Lending, you mentioned you're a lender. So when you're financing a mine, giving them the CapEx to go into production, you're giving them U.S. dollars and you're being repaid in U.S. dollars. So how does yes, the current yes, <laughs> inflationary environment affect you know, Sprott Lending's outlook? Well, uh, one thing it does is uh, paradoxically improve our collateral. If a company is building a mine now, my suspicion is that their total capital costs will be 20% less than if they built it even two years from now, uh, because supply chain inflation in the mining business is much rougher than supply chain inflation in consumer prices. 
the second thing that I would tell you is that the U.S. dollar is the worst currency in the world, except all of the others. It's the world's reserve currency. It's the deepest, most liquid market in the world. Uh, it has a benchmark. Uh, the third thing I would tell you is that these loans are of very short duration. And often, uh, we loan money on a floating base. It might be LIBOR plus six, as an example. So if inflation causes the interest rate to go up, our yield automatically increases. It's important to know, too, that in the type of lending that we do at Sprott, which is primarily project and construction lending, that uh, in addition to the coupon on the loans that we make, we almost always get some form of kicker, some form of ex uh, upside. It might be stock. Uh, it might be a commodity uh, uh, price appreciation uh, warrant of some type. It or might convertibility. Be yeah, might be something like that. And to the extent that the depreciation in the currency began to go wholesale, then I think what you might see is that the uh, profits that we might enjoy in the kickers would offset some of the decline in purchasing power that we received uh, in terms of our coupon. But it's worthy to note that these loans are almost always sort of 18 to 36-month loans. And so we have the ability to continually recycle capital and reset rates. Uh, lending, lending. Can I call you a payday lender then, Rick? Uh, yeah, I've, 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 I've described myself as a sort of a corporate pawnbroker. <laughs> uh, you know, when issuers complain about the high cost of capital, we have to remind them gently about the cost of not having capital at all. And uh, the way the global financial system is set up, Many uh, of the large chartered banks, which would have competed with us 20 years ago, as a consequence of Basel III, uh, are frozen out of the non-investment grade lending opportunities that are available uh, to non-bank financial institutions like Sprott. Um we saw a few notable M&A transactions uh, this year, and it was headlined arguably by the most important one with Agnico Eagle and Kirkland Lake uh, combining, which was approved at the end of November. So I have a two-part question. Uh, first, how do you think the M&A will evolve in this cycle in the you know, next year or so? Do we see more consolidation amongst the, the big boys, or is it a, a matter of them going to pick off the best of the best juniors? And the second part to that question is last cycle, we saw them you know, at the peak do make the wrong decisions and buy marginal assets at high prices. Do we see, what's the probability of seeing that again? I hope we see a lot more M&A. A lot more uh, larger entities with more trading liquidity and higher market capitalizations enjoy a lower cost of capital in a capital intensive business. It's good. The other thing that happens is that larger entities have the ability to pick and choose over many more investment alternatives than smaller entities. You know, if you run a company and you have one project, uh, if you put that project into production, you likely are getting paid. Uh, you're getting your salary and your emoluments for some part, part in time. And so there's a tendency by managements to put marginal projects in production for their own personal reasons, where uh, a company that had many more investment alternatives can optimize among alternatives as opposed to do something for survival. Uh, so I hope that M&A continues at all scale and scope in the business. I don't think that we're going to see an answer to the second part of your question, the return to silly season. 
that we saw two years ago for another two or three years for the simple reason that in 2009, 2010, when the stupidest of the decisions were made in the last cycle, the cost of capital that the mining industry enjoyed was sub-zero, which is to say that the major mining companies were were often selling uh, often had enterprise values that were three times the net present value of their then current cash flows at then commodity prices. Uh, I remember in my youth many years ago having the good fortune to be an early shareholder in Arequipa. I had the good fortune of being in a stock from sort of 50 cents to 15 bucks. And I did my own back of the envelope net present value calculation. I decided the stock was worth $18. And when the stock hit 20 or 21, I sold. Three weeks later, Barrick bought the whole company for $30 a share. And I was thinking either I'm really wrong or they're really wrong. And I inquired of a client of mine who knows a lot about these things. He was CEO of a major mining company at the time. What mistake did I make? He said, none. Uh, You want a net present value basis. Uh, Barrick went on a return on capital employed versus cost of capital basis. If you're selling for three times what you're worth and you pay twice what the target is worth, in the odd calculus of bull markets, it's accretive. (laughs) And that type of mistake, and by the way, that didn't happen to be a mistake. That happened to be a great move for Barrick. But it's that type of thinking, which is uh, return on capital employed versus cost of capital that leads to really quantum mistakes during bull markets because the cost of capital is so low that mining company managements are almost encouraged to make mistakes. We aren't anywhere near there now. Their cost of capital uh, measured the way I do, their equity cost of capital measured by enterprise value relative to net present value is the highest it's been in my career. Great for a check writer, lousy for a check casher. Ken Ross and Great Bear. Rick, you like the deal? Uh, they paid for a lot of upside. Uh, I happen to believe the upside's probably there. Um, Ken Ross historically hasn't had a great track record as capital allocators. And so I'm hoping that this turns that around. Uh, it speaks a lot, I think, to financial investors' continued fondness for jurisdictions that they believe. I think erroneously, by the way, uh, are politically secure. Um, You know, I'll say that. I think the mistake is egregiously overpaying for a Canadian deposit uh, relative to a deposit in some parts of the world where taxes were lower and, and, (laughs) and regulation less severe. It is one of the few deposits out there Uh, that I saw having the probability to grow substantially. And I certainly like the grade in some parts of the deposit, the hinges. Uh, I think, but don't guarantee that this will have a happy ending. My hope is that in the near term, that the ARB guys will take Kinross lower uh, so that I can buy some. I'm not currently a Kinross holder. Uh, I was a great bear or am a great bear holder, but I'm encouraged enough by the acquisition that I'm willing to speculate that it will have a happy ending. The merger that you mentioned before, the um, Agnico Eagle uh, Kirkland, uh, 
transaction must have been a good transaction because the Agnico Eagle shareholders were angry and the Kirkland shareholders were angry. And that's always or almost always the guarantee of a, a good transaction. It'll take them a while to put that to bed. You know, um, they're going to have to work out who the surviving employees are and uh, where it is that they allocate their capital, obviously with regards to the, the uh, Kirkland side of the transaction. Fosterville will get more challenging now that the Swan Zone uh, has been mined out. But I think it's one of those circumstances where two plus two, two plus three could equal seven. Um, I, I like it longer term, and I particularly like it that everybody else doesn't. And so that's one of the just human to human things you measure <laughs> when you analyze these these transactions. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, I think uh, some Kirkland holders thought they deserved a bigger premium. Some Agnico people believed that uh, perhaps their implementation track record and their pipeline was strong enough that they overpaid. And I like the fact that uh, uh, on both sides of the transaction, people thought they were getting a lousy deal. And so they sold off. Uh, I'm somebody who spends most of his life looking for bargains relative to what I think something is worth. And I'm always attracted when people hand me bargains. Brian, you're also a bargain hunter. So what's your next question? Yeah. Um, poor bearish sentiment in the market can be hard to deal with mentally. Share <laughs> prices can be falling for no reason that's related to the company or the company's investment thesis. Generally speaking, do you think that stop losses or having a strategy to sell on a 25 or 30% decline in share price, regardless of whether the investment thesis has been negatively impacted, is a good strategy in the junior market? I do not. Uh, a stop loss becomes a market order. Uh, and in a bad market, when the stock goes no bid, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's an extremely dangerous strategy. Uh, I think that the most common malady among junior stock investors is that they pay slavish attention to the price and no attention whatsoever to the value. Money is made on the delta between price and value. Unless you happen to be a great trader, you know, sort of a momentum guy. And, and I'm not. I'm the farthest thing I know from that. Um, so for me, uh, I try in my own mind to determine, first of all, what the liquidation value of a company is. In other words, what it could be sold for to willing, intelligent buyers. Uh, I, I try and ask myself, which we've talked about before on your show, about the unanswered questions which is how could value be added over what period of time uh, and how probable are those outcomes? And does the company have the ability to fund that outcome? And the consequence of that, there's a sort of a decision-making matrix where uh, I put in place a target price, uh, uh, the time it will take to achieve that uh, and the probability that occurs. If I have a target price on something at $2 and the price is, let's say, $1.20, I am eagerly hoping that it falls 25% in price, uh, particularly if I have some, because if I have some, what it means is that I've already done enough work that I have uh, a commitment and I can use the same intellectual capital and augment it with more physical capital. So in a circumstance where I like a stock and it falls 25% in price, I'm delighted that people have stock losses in place. Uh, because that means that I can acquire their stock at 35% down as opposed to 25% down. 
uh, it isn't a mistake that I personally want to make. Uh, on the other hand, my own orientation is not to pay too much attention to price, but to pay a lot more attention to value. For uh, an investor that didn't have the courage of his or her convictions or couldn't afford to do the work, or, well, I, I covered it with courage of convictions, perhaps stop losses are in order. Uh, for me, uh, stop losses are a wonderful way for traders to subsidize me. <laughs> so here's, here's a, sorry, Bill, I just want to follow up with this. So I like as a, as a value investor, you know, over the last year, I think that we've seen situations where you could say um, if you had available cash and you had companies selling off for no reason, but probably sentiment that I guess in this, I'm relating it to myself that I basically was full fully allocated into the market. Um, and I was, I was sitting there and I'm, I'm evaluating other positions and I found a couple other, uh, potential positions to bring into the portfolio. But of course I'm fully allocated because I took advantage of what I thought were sales. So I guess my question is, if you get into a situation where you know you've you've got your investment thesis and the the company is selling off regardless of that investment thesis, and you know and you get the opportunity to buy thirty percent off, you buy, and there's other opportunities out there that you're seeing. Is is it uh, is it wrong to you know cut short you know your original thesis with this other company and try something else or? Um, I think it's based on value. I mean, Buffett famously says, <clears throat> think of yourself as a small-scale hog farmer, uh, and your cash is your trough. And there might be room at your trough for 10 hogs. If you see an attractive hog out there in the field, that hog has to displace an existing hog. Uh, now, I tell my customers, or I told my customers when I had customers, that the number of hogs at their trough should be concurrent with the number of hours per month they spent spending, they spent studying their portfolio. So that if uh, a client reasonably could expect that he or she would spend 10 hours a month, and I'm not talking about reading generalist economic literature, I'm talking about studying companies in particular. If they were willing to spend 10 hours a month reading 10Ks and 10Qs, quarterlies, analyst reports, stuff like that, they should think about it a portfolio that had 10 stocks in it. If you equate that to 10 hogs, uh, if you have a hog that uh, looks fat, you know, it's been at the trough too long and likely isn't going to grow much, then you metaphorically slaughter that hog. You sell it uh, and you bring another hog in from the field to take its place. The circumstance that you describe when you see opportunities but don't have the ability to avail yourself of those opportunities is you have to look at your existing portfolio and say, do the stocks that inhabit my existing portfolio have attributes that make them superior to the ones I'm considering? If not, you need to sell some stock. Uh, a lot of people have trouble selling a stock that they've lost money on. Uh, I think the psychology of admitting defeat is hard for people. Uh, over 45 or 50 years, I've had to def admit defeat so many times that it carries no scars. Uh, I have found that accepting a 30% loss beats the hell out of accepting a 70% loss. And if the reason to own a stock is gone, the stock should be gone too, irrespective of price. In circumstances too, where there is an opportunity that you haven't availed yourself of, uh, that is more attractive than opportunities that you already own, 
then you make room for the newer superior opportunity at the expense of the older opportunities. It's hard for people to do that, but you know, nobody said uh, getting rich investing is easy. Rick, you've shared on many occasions about how promoters come to you asking for money. You ask them the simplest questions about their business plan and their business plan is simply, I'm trying to get money from you and they can't give you anything of significance beyond that. But let's say you, a promoter comes to you and they sufficiently answer your first initial questions. What are you going to use this money for? What type of results are you looking for? When can I expect the results? They answer all these questions. Do you then, to assess their forward thinkingness, how do you critique how nimble this person will be? Because if that drill program doesn't go as planned and they don't get the results and they're out of money, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm trying to ascertain how you poke the brain of a potential uh, executive or promoter to see how forward thinking they are and nimble they'll be if things don't go as planned. Uh, I assume that they're not going to be nimble. Uh, I have learned that if somebody raises $10 million for a drill program and they experience failure after $3 million, uh, that against all odds, they spend the next seven. So I assume that they'll be stupid going forward. That's my assumption. I've had this discussion many, many, many times with guys. I said, so did you drill your worst holes first? Uh, is that why you kept uh, spending money after you'd conclusively proven that your thesis was incorrect? <laughs> uh, so no, I assume uh, that uh, uh, promoters will ignore data which is why it's incumbent on me to review the data from my own viewpoint. Too many people, uh, if they own a stock at a buck and it goes to 70 cents on bad news, will say, I'm going to hold it till it goes back to a buck. Why would it do that if it fell on bad news? It is true sometimes that in drilling programs, the information learned from drilling, Great Bear is a great example, allows you to define your target better. Uh, those circumstances are the exceptions, though, not the rule. Uh, and so it's important that you spend the requisite one hour per month on each of your holdings so that you can pay attention to the progress of the drilling program rather than have that information delivered to you by an IR person who was likely an English major rather than a geology major. Rick, I think I know the answer that you're going to give me in response to what I'm going to share here, but... I was talking to an executive um, of one of the stocks I own in my portfolio, and I wasn't satisfied with his answer about the path forward. So then I said, well, what input are you getting from the board or what input are you seeking from the board? And he's basically told me nothing. And I was like, okay, so what's plan B? And um, there is no plan B, at least it wasn't articulated to me. So in that situation, you're probably going to tell me just sell, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you have to change your plan based on data, but not having a plan is idiotic. Uh, what what happens if you still believe the asset or the potential is there, but it just needs different management to harness and bring forth that value on a per share basis? What do you do then? I mean, you are different than the average little guy with you know ten thousand share. Can you personally cause it to occur? No. You have your answer. Yeah. So what if somebody else could do it better if they're not gonna? 
the fact that uh, if God intervened on your behalf, your 10,000 shares would become more valuable doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to give a damn about your 10,000 shares. So in a situation where you can't affect the outcome, you can't discount the outcome. Right. Um, that was a good lead into this. It's a hypothetical situation. You've invested and profited with a management team in the past and generally think that they're a capable group of people. Um, their next deal gets put together and you invest. Uh, things seem to be progressing well, and then things unfortunately fall apart. Um, you sell your position and you lose money. Uh, the cause of the disaster can't clearly be linked to management, but you definitely wonder your, to yourself. In terms of future new deals with the same management team, in your view, is it one strike and you're out? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I've had uh, I've had at least one failure with every promoter I've ever backed in my life, with the exception of uh, Bob Quartermain. You know, Bob tends to do one deal a decade. <laughs> uh, so he's not what I would call a serial promoter. He's just serially successful. But certainly I had one failure, one and a half failures with Ross Beatty. Remember the failure is the expectation. If you are involved with a group that has given you 60 or 70% successes, you're way, way, way ahead of the game. It's incumbent on you, I think, if you've enjoyed success with a team, to think about why you enjoyed success with a team. Uh, I want to invest with people who have been su su successful, but I want the successes to be relevant to the task at hand. Uh, we've talked about this before in this interview format, but if somebody's success in mining was because they were successful operating a gold mine in Archean terrain in French-speaking rural Quebec, but what they're proposing to do today is explore rather than operate for copper gold in 15 million year old accreted terrain in the Spanish speaking Peruvian Altiplano. The successes that they enjoyed may not be indicative to, of skill sets that they could employ in the task at hand. Uh, too many management teams having enjoyed success and as a consequence of success, having access to low cost of capital and probably also uh, having maybe a more inflated notion of the probability of their success in the future, become aggressive in ways that present risk to you, the investor. And you need to consider that. Is the task at hand one that's amenable to the skill set of the successful team that made you money in the past? There are uh, groups, I'm thinking the Lundines, who have a 40-year track record of being able to hire people who are suited to the task at hand. You know, the idea that Adolf Lundin is an example, a petroleum engineer, was going to be a highly successful guy in copper gold exploration in Argentina. If you look simply at where he had enjoyed his successes in the 60s and 70s, you wouldn't have followed him into Argentina, except then when you saw, uh, you know, uh, Martinez and Jones, the people he hired to do the work for them. Then you came to understand that Adolf Lundin had skills that probably transcended uh, mining and oil and gas. Uh, and then you could allow yourself to be somewhat more generous in investing in Adolf and then Lucas and Ian's track record. You have a follow-up to that, Brian? No, that's great. That's great. When the market votes no confidence on an executive, Rick, is it done? And a junior miner, if the, if the street is saying 
we don't believe this guy anymore, but you still think he's qualified on a technical level. Is the streets vote? Does that overcome whatever technical expertise the gentleman has? Or nothing, I, nothing I love more than that. Uh, unless if the streets vote is no confidence is because the stock hasn't gone up uh, or because he or she gave a bad talk at PDAC. If it doesn't involve ethical challenges, I love it. Uh, there's nothing I like more than something I want to buy getting pathetically cheap. And the only way that happens is if there is something about my thesis that's unpalatable to the public. You'll recall, Bill, three years ago, you and I talked extensively about uranium on your show. And one of the things that gave me the courage of my convictions was to read the comment comments uh, below the interview by the people who were talking. It wasn't merely that uranium hadn't performed and it bored them. They were hostile. They accused you and I of profiting from Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island. And the very fact that out of 50 responses, those who bothered to respond about uranium at all were either saying, it's a has-been, Rick's a has-been, uh, or uh, this is deleterious to humankind. That let me know that I was in a very lonely place. And being in a lonely place where the arithmetic is so solidly on my side is absolutely my favorite place to be personally. I, I remember for years, uh, I invested alongside Ned Goodman forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And Ned was perennially unpopular because his deals were fairly complex. Uh, but he never treated me unfairly. They were always complex for a reason. And the fact that people found Ned to be uh, complex and boring uh, meant to me that I got one of the greatest minds in the mining business, an honest one too, cheaply. <laughs> and every time I heard the, I heard the, uh, criticism about Ned, oh, his deals are boring. I always thought, you know, for me, boredom is an antidote to terror. And I prefer boredom to terror. And I prefer a proven performer like Ned to a smooth-talking high flyer, uh, a nothing, nowhere, glib, white-shoed promoter. What you said reminded me what a pilot told me once. He said, my job is 99.999% mundane boredom and 0.001% sheer tear. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right, Brian, any final questions? No, that's all for me. Well, Rick, you're always so generous. Um, you're still doing portfolio reviews, right? I am. Uh, any of your listeners who care what I think about their specific resource stocks rather than the general questions that we dealt with today are invited to buy, go to my new website, ruleinvestmentmedia.com. List your natural resource stocks. Uh, please, folks, no crypto. Please, no technology. Please, no pot stocks. NFTs? Uh, Are you doing NFTs now? I'm not doing <laughs> NFTs. <laughs> Do Dogecoin? Oh, or? Yeah, no, none of that. Okay. Uh, I'll rank them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. For investors who care, uh, I will include the Barron's Gold Mining Index chart, which I think is the best gold equities index in existence not because I care about technical analysis, but rather because it's a great visual aid to understand the anatomy of a bull market and where we are today. I'll include two for people who mention charts, uh, the uh, Goldman Sachs commodity chart, which shows just how 
cheap and or expensive various commodities are relative to other asset classes going back uh, 100 years. For I have a new service for those uh, of your readers who are accredited, that is to say, uh, interested in private placements and in a position to take advantage of private placements. If you mention private placements, now that I'm no longer a broker, uh, now that I'm no longer regulated by the SEC or the Ontario Securities Commission or all those alphabet soup agencies, I can tell people uh, what I'm doing with my own money. I'm not charging commissions. And so all of a sudden I have commercial freedom of speech, uh, which is really fun. <laughs> well, I got to get on your list. <laughs> Great. Well, Rick, thank you. And Brian, thank you. I uh, really appreciate you both coming on the show today, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.